Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Alroy sees history as a series of ongoing conspiracies, all kind of loosely interconnected. And that's what his portrayal of the JFK assassination was. It was that his view of the conspiracy is a kind of loosely connected tripartite theory of uh, mafia, rogue intelligence agencies, and right-wing Cuban exiles. So I think his greatest gift to genre writers today is in his historical revisionism, which many, many newer generation of, of writers are trying to imitate. You know, I've known James for a few years now, and it's, I'm always fascinated by his persona. Uh, he learned very early on as a writer that you need a persona, you need to project something out there into the public to maintain their interests sort of beyond just what's on the page. And so he created this big, larger-than-life persona of the demon dog, the foul owl with the death growl and all this. And it's interesting because while there's truth in, in a lot of what he projects. I also know that a lot of it is just a, a bit of a put-on for him. You know, and I, I've seen over the years how he's tempered that a little bit, and he's changed a little bit, and uh, he's not quite as hardcore in some of his uh, what he's putting out there, you know, the, the white knight of the far right and all that kind of stuff. He's a bit of a performer. I'm not a racist, says American novelist James Elroy. I hate hipsters, I hate liberals, I hate rock and rollers, I hate counterculture, I hate movie people. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to devote the entire hour to one of the most outspoken, distinctive and provocative voices of our time, the demon dog of American crime fiction, James Elroy. Think LA Confidential, American Tabloid and Perfidia. This evening, we're going to unpack the tense, dirty, hellish, trilling, sleazy, dark and explosive world of the demon dog and ask, does James Elroy deserve his rank as the master of hard-boiled fiction? Everybody has an opinion about James Elroy. He can spark intense anger in people. People do suddenly come out with Occasionally, he's a fascist, racist, not case. Or they suddenly do think, yeah, James Elroy, that when you mention his name, he is, you know, just this incredible writer and this incredible person to be around and to see in public. Not just a great writer, but a performer as well. James Elroy was born in Los Angeles in 1948. He's the author of the acclaimed L.A. Quartet, The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz, as well as his Underworld USA trilogy, American Tabloid, The Cold 6000 and Bloods Are Rover. Elroy has also written for film, has published two memoirs, My Dark Places and The Hilliker Curse, My Pursuit of Women. Quite something when you think that Elroy dropped out of school, was homeless and struggled with trauma, alcohol and drugs addiction through most of his teens and twenties. Now Elroy describes himself as an authoritarian, a conservative and a moralist, and says, I know how to exploit what's been given to me, early parental dysfunction, my mother's murder, all my crazy shit. But is James Elroy a racially insensitive writer? Is it fair to describe his work as nihilistic fiction? And how well does Elroy write the underbelly of America's political history, its criminal underworld and the LAPD? 
Well, joining me tonight are three James Elroy enthusiasts, friends and admirers. Dr Stephen Powell is a crime fiction scholar and an honorary fellow at the University of Liverpool. Stephen is the editor of an anthology of interviews, Conversations with James Elroy, and he's the author of the recently published James Elroy, Demon Dog of Crime Fiction. Dr Elizabeth McCarthy is a lecturer at the Department of English at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on murder and crime, noir fiction and film, and post-World War teen culture. Elizabeth's books include Fear, Essays on the Meaning and Experience of Fear, co-edited with Kate Hebblesweight, and It Came from the 1950s, Popular Culture, Popular Anxieties, co-edited with Bernie Smurphy and Daryl Jones. Elizabeth is also the founder and editor of the online journal, The Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. Later I'll be joined by Eddie Muller, the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation and co-programmer of the San Francisco Noir City Film Festival. I asked Stephen, did reading James Elroy change his life? Well, I think it did in terms of not only did it open my eyes to what crime fiction can achieve as literature, but, you know, he's, he's had an enormous input on my life in terms of I've edited one book on him, I've written another book on him, I've uh, written countless articles about him and did a PhD on him and in terms of years of my life that's been quite a, a long part of my life so I think reading Elroy has changed my life. Elizabeth, how would you describe Elroy's voice to somebody who hasn't read him? Outrageous, very often offensive, exciting, impactful, stylized. I suppose high octane, high speed. He often sounds like some of the characters he writes about. So if they're pimps or punks or drug addicts, um, he can sound a little bit like that. He uses an awful lot of slang and language that is associated with the characters. So we're talking about a kind of a bebop, rebop, jazz, police slang, African-American drug dealing slang. Um, there's lots of different slang and it's very time specific as well. So it's sort of like LA 1940s, but without the censorship of Hollywood um, taking over, if you know what I mean. Now, he's an enormous personality in his own right. Mm-hmm. And it's, do you think it's fair to say he's as big as his books? Because if you read some of the stuff that he's come out with in interviews to journalists, he's uh, large in life, to put it mildly. He is indeed. I think he's incredibly provocative and he's aware of that. He believes, I think, that meeting people and talking to people should be always an exciting interaction. He's a provocateur and I think that's primarily what he is in person as well as in his books. And he gets a tremendous amount of fun out of what he writes and how he writes. And I think he gets the same sort of fun out of interviews with people and um, giving uh, book talks as well. So do you think, though, that we can in some way distinguish the writer from that persona? Or do you think we should bother doing that? I don't think we can and I don't think we should bother. I think that there is an Elroy, the writer, the narrator. There's Elroy, the person we meet in interviews. And then there's a private Elroy who we get bare glimpses of. But I think that his public persona is a construction almost as much as his novels are. Absolutely. Elroy has created his own persona and he named himself as the demon dog of American crime fiction. I think some people have said the demon dog is just a label, but I think it's played an important part in his career. Early in his career, after he had two novels published with moderate success, he suddenly found he couldn't sell his next novel. His agent dumped him. He was in New York. He was down on his luck, and he, he wandered into the mysterious bookshop 
and stormed into the office of Otto Penzler, who was is still one of the great crime fiction editors, and just declared himself, I am the demon dog of crime fiction. And Penzler said, well, I've never heard of you. So he's very brassy, he's bold, he's brash, but he's created this persona to sell his own novels, actually, to project his character. And it is outrageous. He, he does spout right-wing things. You're never quite sure if he believes in them. It's comical. He's also something of a romantic as well. And it's hard to separate that from his private life, from his, his life as a writer. I, I must admit, the times that I've met him at book readings, and at one time at his home to interview him in Los Angeles, he was a perfect gentleman, very encouraging, very enthusiastic, and, and very supportive to young writers and young researchers. So I felt privileged to see the kinder side to him. Now, history has a fairly tight grip all over his writing, and so does L.A. Do you think we couldn't describe him as a moralistic writer? I think it works two ways, because I think he's trying, to, in his L.A. Quartet novels and the Underworld USA novels, he's trying to demythologize the era, saying 1950s, 1960s, America was not so moralistic. Social conservatism was on the surface, but if you look beneath that, there was lack of accountability and power. Organized crime was at its height. Uh, the intelligence services, the FBI, the CIA, that were a law to themselves. But despite the horrific violence in his books, despite the profanity, despite the fact that the characters might have very dubious views towards compared to our contemporary views, he is still quite a moral writer in terms of he wants his men, his hitmen who've chosen a bad path to be redeemed by love. He punishes them quite harshly for their actions. And although the books are dark, there is an element of hopefulness in them, which I think keeps the dramatic tension there and stops them from becoming kind of unrelentingly dark. Now, he writes incredibly interesting women. Could it be argued that his mother, in some way, Elizabeth, has haunted his life? Can you give me a run through what actually happened with his mother? When his parents divorced, he lived with his mother. And then at 10 years old, she was um, raped and murdered. Um, The police have never found the perpetrator. Mm. There's a very interesting photograph of him that appears in um, the LA newspapers on the death of his mother. He's 10 years old and it's a kind of a flashbulb Mm. shot of him looking a bit mystified. And basically he called himself a cold calculating F word. At 10 years old, he said, more or less, I thought, great, I can move Mm. back with my dad because my dad is more more fun. He'll let me get away with more. So that was his initial reaction on his mother's death. Now, in hindsight, we can say that psychologically he was dealing with a lot of things and that's the way he dealt with that. So he moved in with his father. And what we see after that is a a gradual obsession uh, with certain things, with crime fiction. His father bought him The Badge, which is a kind of a compilation of real life cases. In that, he found the story of Elizabeth Short, um, the Black Dahlia murder case. And as he said himself, he more or less became obsessed with Elizabeth Short in that case. And in many ways, he realises or he realised as time went on that he was really substituting the Elizabeth Short case, which had all the the drama and major headlines that his mother's case didn't have as a way of dealing with his mother's own death and trying to understand it. He said um, that he didn't know her in life. 
but he was going to try his very best to know her in death. And so he writes um, the autobiography called My Dark Places, which is more or less about him partly investigating his mother's death, but also investigating his own feelings and how they've uh, developed and evolved over time towards his mother and towards women generally. Because if you think about it, what you have is somebody who's violently and sexually torn away, a female figure in his life, torn away from him. And it's a kind of an emptiness that he's built a lot of his female characters around that. They've mystery and power, but they're also somehow sort of absent from a lot of his texts, Mm. which I think is changing as he writes more and more female characters. But they have mystery and power, possibility of redemption. But in some senses, they're always absent or peripheral, as his mother must have been for him. So in a way, he constructs her out of his desires. And he realises now, I think, that that's a sort of a disservice to her and to female characters in general to, to kind of construct them out of his own imagination. But knowing his backstory and what happened and the gruesome murder of his mum and how he dealt with that, do you think in some way that changes how readers interpret and understand his work? Quite possibly, because he does, in a kind of a small-scale way, he does seem like one of the characters in his novels. And and to reiterate what was said before, I think his demon dog personality isn't just a way of selling books, it's a way of him being able to be that indirect narrator in the stories, in all of his narratives. He has a bigger-than-life, grandiose ability to kind of tell a story in a very confident, balshy manner. If you look at his life after his mother's death, as Elizabeth was saying, it it did go off the rails. He indulged in in drink and, and drug abuse and ended up in jail, but he said, as a man in the 1960s, I was indulging in sex and, and vices that I, to a certain extent I could get away with, whereas my mother, as a divorcee dating in the 1950s, was you know, morally condemned for. So I think he realizes that although, yes, he did do some nihilistic things and, and certainly his writing as a consequence of that can be quite dark, he was also, even in his darkest periods, spending time in libraries, reading up on crime fiction learning the ropes of the genre, learning how to write. Now, Stephen, I read uh, Bloods Are Over over the Christmas and uh, I did find some of the language very hardcore. I could see how some readers would find him racially insensitive. Do you think that stance or do you think that we have to say that he's writing historical fiction primarily, that it reflects or is accurate to the time and what people were talking about? Yes, absolutely. I think, well, two things. Firstly, that he's not a, a scholar of the period. He, you know, he never finished high school. His his method of research as a historical novelist was growing up out in L.A. in the 50s and soaking up the ambience and soaking up the way people spoke. As for the late 60s, uh, early 70s, which was the setting for Blood Zorova, when you're dealing with kind of cops and intelligence operatives, he makes it careful that the distinction is that for them, for his characters, racism is a casual attribute and it's not a defining characteristic. The characters may be incidentally racist, but they may have more honourable features of their personality. And this has been hugely controversial in his career. There's a critic called Mike Davis who wrote a, a history of L.A. called City of Quartz, and he called Elroy racist, fascist. He called the text satanic. But I think we have to make a distinction between Characters in the book who are racist doesn't necessarily make the author racist or the text racist. How good is Perfidia? Well, Perfidia 
split the critics. I was one of the critics who thought that it, it was a good book. It was a bit of a, it was, it was almost kind of paradoxically a conservative risk from Alroy because he's returning to the, to the LA quartet that made his name as a writer. This, he's writing four new novels, Perfidy was the first, they're prequels to the original quartet. So we know the characters, he's revisiting his classic characters like Dudley Smith, Bucky Blightheart, and to a certain extent, we know what's going to happen to them in the long run. But revisiting them at an earlier point in their lives, Perfidia was set in LA around the time of Pearl Harbor and the internment of Japanese Americans. It was very interesting to read about LA during the war in a period prior to actually Alroy's birth. So it's a period he has had to do a lot of research in. And I think there were elements of vintage Alroy there. There were some good plot twists. I mean, some of the kind of classic payoffs that we've come to uh, understand about his work. But at the same time, I, f- I felt that it, it was somewhat flawed and, and hackneyed in places. Elizabeth, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned to me how his style had changed. Can you talk me through how things have changed and how he's moved in or maybe commanded historical fiction more than crime in some ways? There's three elements to what's changed about Elroy for me, um, reading the early novels through to the most recent ones. My first novel of, of his that I read what was The Black Dahlia, and it blew my mind. I, I had read A Little Chandler, A Little Hammett, and I thought, oh my God, this is like those hard-boiled writers, I think as one critic said, not only squared, but cubed. <laughs> it's sort of just more of everything. So I was just blown away. And then I, I, I read all of the rest of the L.A. Quartet, the Big Nowhere, which I loved, um, one of the central characters is an undercover cop trying to discover a slate of homosexual murderers. Or ho- homosexuals are being murdered, so he goes undercover to do that. And again, that's something you won't get in, in Chandler or Hammett because they're writing much earlier and you can't have a central character doing that sort of thing. But it's really L.A. Confidential, I think, where... And it kind of came about as of need because um, the, literally his, his publisher said to him, get rid of 100 pages. So rather than... Uh, get rid of any of his subplots which were obviously all precious to him he said I'll get rid of all unnecessary words so he starts omitting connecting words his sentences become more stylized, more short the information is still there but lots of connecting words are omitted and he more or less started to refer to this as his telegraphic style telegraphs means that he has straight sentences with subject verb very few repetitions and very few modifications but in terms of genre then and obviously this moved on I, I should mention the white jazz and also uh, the cold 6000 again use that very clipped exciting style which is very hard for some people to get into and even if you're an Elroy fan um, the first 30 pages can be a nightmare but I I advise people to stay with it because you do start to absorb the, the lingo if you like in terms of genre, um, you could argue that it's straightforward crime up to a point, but he's so soaked in the era and in supposedly inconsequential characters, but also the corruption of much higher authority figures, that to me, it's always a history. But I think for Elroy, it's more the characters, the place and the language is most important to him. And what his genre is, it really depends on what people want to label it afterwards, I think. And you were earlier comparing him to Don DeLillo. Don DeLillo was a big influence on his life. 
in book talks originally uh, Thomas Harris was somebody that he mentioned though I think he's, he's much better than Thomas Harris and I think he thinks he is too and Thomas Harris writing has changed dramatically since the, the first couple of Hannibal novels but also um, yeah he mentions Don DeLillo specifically in reference to Underworld USA trilogy where he realised that you could approach American history through major events but not circle around necessarily too many of the major characters or the major event itself but actually look at the people behind the people behind the people behind the event and in this sense um, he particularly references Libra which more or less looks at the JFK assassination but from the point of a loser Oswald in the sense that Oswald is not seen as the lone assassin and we get this obviously with his other novels as well James Elroy's novels in the Underworld USA trilogy is that we like to pinpoint one lone assassin crazy man as the reason for changing history and all of the time he suggests that America in and of itself creates and then destroys these people. That's interesting I think what you were saying there about Libra and how Lee Harvey Oswald is this rather pathetic character. With Underworld USA, I think Elroy was using fiction as a form of historical revisionism and therefore saying that the JFK assassination, contrary to what Oliver Stone might have portrayed in his film JFK, it was not a loss of innocence moment. It was not a kind of precursor to Watergate where people suddenly became cynical about their political establishments. It was the underworld of organized crime and rogue intelligence operatives. It was them surfacing and committing this ultimate crime, the highest crime possible, the conspiracy to murder the U.S. president. But what Alroy says in the prologue is uh, you cannot lose what you lacked at conception. So the underworld of corruption of these state institutions working for themselves rather than working for the public had been permeating for, for, for many, many years. Going back to Bloods of Rove that we mentioned earlier is because that set shortly before Watergate, the underworld there has shifted towards kind of left-wing activists connected to things like the Black Panther movement, uh, radical feminists. So it's, it's a different underworld of um, secret societies with their own laws and their own rules. But when that surfaces in American society, you suddenly have the political establishment, the old political establishment of Hoover and Nixon and the political party machine threatened and exposed. And Alroy actually said that he left it there, the Underworld USA series finishes in 1972, shortly before Watergate, because 